Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, January 9th, 2009, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, our guest is Dr. Derek C. Angus, MD, MPH, FCCM. Dr. Angus is currently chairman of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and we're speaking with him today as he is the recipient of the American College of Critical Care Medicine Distinguished Investigator Award, which is the highest recognition given to an individual whose scientific and educational contributions to the art and science of critical care demonstrate career commitment. He's going to be giving a presentation during the convocation and award ceremonies entitled Change. And today we are going to have an opportunity to speak with him a little bit about the state of the critical care research enterprise and to get to a little bit of a chance to learn a bit about his background. Thank you so much, Derek, for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. Um, I just thought for maybe critical care fellows who who haven't heard about you or are still learning about you, maybe you could take a few moments and talk about, uh, I guess, from what I understand, you were originally from Europe and uh, what got you excited about critical care in the first place, and then maybe your migration to Pittsburgh, where I know you've stayed for quite some time. So I trained originally in Scotland and... uh um, was actually nearing the end of my medical school, had not yet entered residency, and at the time was thinking that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I trained in Glasgow under the chap who developed the Glasgow Coma Scale, and uh, as part of my medical school, spent some time at uh, the University of Virginia. And when I was over visiting the States at the University of Virginia, it was at that time that, though I liked neurosurgery, uh, I fell in love with the intensive care unit. I came back, completed my medical school training, and uh, at that point made a plan to change out of surgery and get trained in internal medicine with a view to then seeking further training in intensive care. And that was all under the, the mentorship and advice of Ian Leddingham, who was then the president of the World Federation of Intensive Care, and by nothing other than happenstance and good fortune happened to be in my department back in Glasgow. So I was very fortuitous. And it was Ian who recommended when I was applying for critical care fellowships in the United States, uh, it was he that suggested I should come train in the States. And he further suggested that I take a serious look at Pittsburgh and particularly the program that Peter Saffer and Oki Grenvik had been running. Otherwise, I to be honest, I don't think I would ever have thought about Pittsburgh, and I was given some nice offers for some programs uh, in other places, mainly because of the quality of Ian Leddingham as my sponsor. Nothing to do with me. but um, And then just as a quick question, because we all sort of go through this a little bit, is one, uh, did you ever think about becoming or doing this through anesthesia? And two, was uh, was doing it as a combined pulmonary critical care? Yeah. Can you talk about that? So those are good questions. So I did, uh, so I was going to be doing surgery, and it was Ian Leddingham who suggested that uh, he thought, at least in Britain at the time, although it was mainly critical care came after anesthesiology, he felt it would be better to train in internal medicine first, and then seek critical care training on top of internal medicine in the U.S. I think, though, that 
that was simply what seemed to be prudent for my own particular interests and for the timing and for where I was. I would I love that critical care is a specialty that sits on top of several underlying specialties, and I think it's one of its strengths. I think those of us that feel we're intensivists in our bones um, find that we bond with each other, regardless of whether we're trained in surgery, uh, internal medicine, pediatrics, or whatever, and that when we work collaboratively, we can draw on each other's strengths from our background disciplines. And that's certainly something that uh, we've really cultured in our department here in Pittsburgh, where uh, our department has both pediatric and adult critical care, and where we have surgeons, intensive uh, surgeons, anesthesiologists, pediatricians, internists, pulmonologists, all with critical care boards, all working in the same units, uh, side by side. And when you came, uh, when you were at Pittsburgh, from what I understand, you, you, was your MPH integrated into your fellowship, or can you talk about how you ended up with doing all the kinds of outcomes? Uh, uh, sure. I'm giving away my age now because it was a long time ago when I got my MPH. And at that time, I don't think MPH programs were really integrated with any kind of clinical research program. That's obviously changed massively in the United States today, nowadays, with CTSAs and a lot of NIH support for all sorts sorts of clinical research education. Lots of large university programs have tightly integrated MPH programs with all sorts of clinical fellowships. But back when I was doing my MPH uh, between 1990 and 1992, that was something that I wanted to do in a, um, uh, and just was uh, lucky enough that I was supported in doing that while doing the research part of my uh, critical care training. My interest in doing it was actually because I had worked with Médecins Sans Frontières before coming to do critical care in Pittsburgh. And working in an international relief agency, I was very interested in a number of public health issues and, in fact, saw a little bit of an intersection between relief and disaster crises and intensive care. And uh, so that was both the thesis of my work and my MPH. So you're... you're so it was Doctors Without Borders, and that was between your your residency and your critical care fellowship. You were saying? Yep, I had been uh, I had been offered a spot by Pittsburgh, and asked them if I could defer it, out of a set of feelings about uh, it was, for a whole set of personal reasons. It felt very important to me to uh, spend some time in a volunteer organization such as Médecins Sans Frontières, and and in fact, although. My motives were about trying to uh, carve out a certain set of experiences for my life. In reality, it was probably one of the most valuable things I did, even for shaping my research career. Where did you work? Where, where did you go? So I was in Southeast Asia setting up a healthcare program for the Vietnamese boat people, who you may remember were arriving as refugees in the hundreds by day landing on uh, the shores principally of Hong Kong, where they were being interred in uh, in large uh, facilities that were converted into makeshift prisons, essentially. And there was a, a call that the Hong Kong government should hand over their care to the United Nations, to UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, who then asked Médecins Sans Frontières to come in and take over all responsibilities for healthcare, and I was the first doctor of Médecins Sans Frontières to go in and start trying to set up that program. So it was a little microcosm of setting up a healthcare system, uh, and actually awakened my eyes to many of the issues about how 
um, care at the bedside is really a function of the system behind it, that the same patient with the same problem gets an entirely different management strategy depending on what part of the world they're in, which sounds obvious, but living it really changes your perspective and helps build a real passion for trying to think certainly about one patient, one patient at a time, but also thinking about how you make change for the betterment of entire populations of patients, not just the patient in your ICU today, but the thousands of patients that will be in your ICU in the future and in, and in every other ICU. And you did that for about a year or so, mm-hmm. more? Yeah, yeah so... And uh, I, I think I think I don't think I could have done it longer. No, and a lot of <laughs> it's it, intense. No, it sounds like uh, where you were that those kinds of situations aren't even ready to handle high level. So these people could get acutely ill, but there was no intensive. The only intensive care was to make agreements uh, with hospitals about ev- evacuating people from the camps to surrounding uh, hospitals if they should get acutely ill. Uh, L- let me um, move on before we talk about uh, this nice supplement talking about the critical care research enterprise. Just a moment to get your opinions on things, this this concept of, of mentorship in academic medicine, which it, it can be a great challenge. And I was wondering if you could talk either about your good experience with mentorship and currently now certainly as chair, you must have uh, issues where you're matching up new fellows to get them properly mentored. Uh, if you want to talk about that, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, mentorship is an easier thing to talk about. And uh, the first thing is to say that... Um, it's it's absolutely, in my opinion, it's it's massively important, and that it's incredibly important for any institution to take very seriously trying to help guide uh, junior trainees to the right mentor. Uh, the right mentor and the right mentor-mentee relationship um, is probably a defining moment. Uh, that is one of the largest predictors of success for any junior trainee. I was incredibly fortunate uh, to work under Peter Saffer. Uh, It may have been somewhat haphazard the way in which I got to him, but we tried to be very programmatic in our department about identifying uh, individuals who may have mentoring needs and uh, getting them matched um, taking almost being programmatic in trying to get people matched to mentors. We do that not only for junior researchers, but also for junior clinical faculty. We have uh, uh, faculty in an education track. Um, uh, we take very seriously trying to get senior advisors uh, who work with them on their career aspirations and career development. I thought we'd conclude, um, and again, uh, Dr. Angus, this is not uh, tricky. I thought that I was very, very happy when I saw the supplement to critical care medicine in January 2009. I'm just going to read the title. It was Improving Clinical Trials in the Critically Ill Proceedings of a Roundtable Conference in Brussels, Belgium in in March of 2008. And then I saw your, uh, what I'm holding in my hand here, the introduction to that, which was entitled The Clinical Research Enterprise in Critical Care, What's Right?, what's wrong and what's ahead. Right. And um, I didn't want you to solve all the world's problems, but I thought you would address some of them very nicely. And I was actually going to read uh, the introduction uh, sentence or two and let you comment and sure. a couple other key points. So I'm just going to read this here. Uh, one can broadly divide critical care trials into two categories, those testing variations of current practice with hypotheses driven by clinical acumen Uh, and experience, and those that test fundamentally new concepts based on understanding of pathophysiology and encouraging early investigations. Then you wrote, in the past 30 years, intensivists have succeeded spectacularly with the first type of trial. And then in the end of that paragraph, you write, in contrast, with one controversial exception, activated protein C, 
The second type of trial has failed to show a benefit. And maybe if you want to talk for a couple minutes about that, those two categories, I thought that'd be great. Sure. So obviously, um, when when one chooses, when one writes, one ends up getting forced into being a lumper or a splitter. And uh, for the sake of organization, I split them into these two domains. There's obviously some overlap, but um, the two domains, uh, uh, this first category is about really trying to do trials to better understand our variation in practice. And so we've seen studies such as, should we raise the head of the bed or not? And that would have gone on as something that we had never addressed if we, if someone hadn't sat down and decided, well, let's do a trial of raising the head of the bed and see if it improves uh, uh, subglottic drainage and decreases VAP rates and so on. And in fact, we've, we have really become quite sophisticated in tackling... Uh, a lot of the way in which we organize care uh, and sub- submitting it to a randomized trial design. And not all the trials are positive, but, but, but that research agenda has actually been very fruitful. And in general, we've also been good at enrolling patients into those trials, in part because a lot of these questions arise from the very people providing intensive care themselves, so that, that, we're, that we're answering the questions that interest us. The other kind of research comes down to us out of the labs of pharmaceutical companies and out of the labs of academic universities where there's been some breakthrough in molecular biology suggesting a new, a novel target. Uh, and they usually come out of a set of somewhat reductionist experiments where something may have improved outcome in a, in a mouse model, but that mouse model might look very different from the, from the complex reality of septic shock in the ICU. And then using a very old model of progressing from animal studies to phase one safety trials to phase two dosing studies and then on to phase three, we march in a predictable way through a set of very expensive and ultimately usually failed uh, steps to try to find out if the drug would work. And, uh, And that second one has been disappointing. It's been disappointing because um, we've spent dollar for dollar far more money in this second kind of research. Uh, And we've done it on the backs of, um, uh, on the back of the last three or four decades of incredible expansion in the knowledge of the biologic sciences. And yet we're tripping up uh, at the bedside. And I think a lot of that is because um, uh, it's a gross oversimplification that just because there's a potential molecular target, you could take a single drug at a single dose and infuse it for 48 hours into the bloodstream and expect that it would magically uh, interfere with whatever host response it is we're trying to manipulate in just the right kind of way, that after adjusting for all other things, it would result in an improvement in the likelihood of someone being alive one month later. It's just, it stretches credibility, but we do it because we're short of alternative tools. We We don't have more sophisticated ways to tell apart two clinically similar septic shock patients, one in whom the particular molecular pathway has gone awry, the other of whom maybe that pathway isn't even the the, uh, the offending problem. 
Uh, we're short of tools that allow us to have a live readout of whether the drug is really having the mechanism of action effect that we anticipate in that patient. We give the drug and then it's a black box until one month later when they live or die. Uh, so there are real challenges about getting the sophistication of understanding the biology of our diseases in the patients live while they're lying there sick in the ICU. Getting that biology being read out to us in a live way at the same level of understanding as we've identified one piece at a time in a reductionist way uh, uh, in the in vitro setting or in the animal model setting. And so, um, unfortunately, we're sort of heading towards the end, but I just want to re-summarize that and then ask the last couple of questions. So the, the big picture there is that um, despite the tremendous, for example, in sepsis, understanding the molecular biology of sepsis, there's been an inability to translate that effectively, despite all of the tremendous basic science research, into effective therapeutic options. There's a whole set of ways in which uh, we need to try to forge ahead, not the least of which is it's important for those researchers making those breakthroughs to make a compelling case to the clinicians that it's really a part of the future of critical care to join as a partner in doing this research. Uh, uh, one, one of the problems is that um, uh, we're still managing diseases with what I would argue is an intolerably high mortality rate. And if, if these sepsis conditions, for example, were considered cancers, if there was a cancer that upon diagnosis had a 25% mortality rate at one month, then there would be the general perception that every patient with that diagnosis ought to be in a clinical trial because it's an absolute priority to bring that mortality down. And yet, of all the patients in this country who develop severe sepsis each year, I would be stunned if more than 0.1% or maybe even 0.01% ever end up in a clinical trial. So, so, so there's a failure of the partnership between the research community and the clinical community. I'm not blaming either side. I'm saying there simply isn't a good enough partnership. And then within that partnership, if we started doing more trials, there's a ton of heavy lifting to be done in, in thinking through how to be more sophisticated in the design and execution of those trials. One was, you seem to really emphasize in this introductory uh, statement, this issue of poorly designed phase two trials. And I was just wondering if you could just maybe comment for a minute or so about that. Again, it's not necessarily... Or not poorly designed, but that that was a What a key, they do, yeah. they, they very well execute themselves <laughs> in the same way that they've always been done. But, but they're based on, um, you know, you take a drug at, say, three doses, and the readout is which one best affects mortality. Um, and there's no chance, it's not powered to make any meaning, from a statistical standpoint, to make any meaningful inferences about differences in mortality. And so then you say, okay, so mortality is the wrong readout. So then we choose another interim endpoint that's of unknown either biologic relevance or clinical relevance. So if you have agent X that affects pathway Y, in the lab, you should at least in a minimum demonstrate in the phase two study that agent X is indeed affecting pathway Y uh, in the phase two clinical trial. The phase two trial is the glue 
that sits between the eventual phase three study and the basic science beforehand, and yet it's not functioning as a good glue. There's not information, that the quality of the information from a phase two doesn't feed back to let us reconcile whether it makes sense given the basic science, and it doesn't feed forward to help us make more intelligent decisions about whether we should go into phase three, and if we go into phase three, what the design of the phase three should look like. Is that they're underemphasized, or is that they should be doing more than one phase two trial for a particular uh, therapeutic agent? The harsh reality is that if we can't come up with better endpoints, then the only other solution is to do larger phase two trials, which, which no one has the stomach for, because that makes them so expensive. The reality is that we probably have to do our homework actually outside trial design on a little bit better job of doing biomarker development. Biomarker development uh, uh, comes into prime time in a randomized trial setting, but requires a lot of homework first in observational studies and other kinds of studies where we're trying to understand are we even tracking the physiology and the biology within someone. We, We need to make connections between the the hypothesized biologic pathway we think we're trying to modify and the clinical outcomes we care about. Um, And and that involves a programmatic body of research. Um, And the phase two is only worried about studying a drug. It's not... We we need to do a better job of actually doing the studies of how we're going to measure what the drug is trying to do in the phase two trials. Does that make sense? No, I mean, the the big picture for people who may not be super experts in this is that the the phase two studies are sort of the dose finding studies. And your point is, is that there, from what I was reading in your your manuscript, there are often great discrepancies between outcomes of the phase two and then the inevitable, the uh, outcomes in the phase three studies, right? There's a whole set of problems. One is the discrepancy. The other is, it's not actually... It might purport to tell you which dose, <laughs> but uh, it's not robustly designed to give to make meaningful statistical inference about which dose. And even at a simplistic level, phase two studies made sense in in situations such as, for example, giving an antibiotic where the readout is an MIC level, where we already know. Uh, something about the relationship between an MIC level and an eventual clinical resolution. Um, And then you give the antibiotic, and the higher the concentration in the serum or the lower the concentration in the serum, you're likely to then have a relationship with the outcome of MIC. And so you can do a dose, you can measure how much it's in the blood, and then you can see how well it's affecting the MIC, and that's a good indication of how you're getting the drug on board and how it's influencing an intermediate marker that correlates very well with what you're eventually going to care about, which is care, which is treating infections in the phase three trial. Um, but when you give a biologic agent to influence a particular pathway, say blocking a TLR4 or some other toll receptor, you don't even know if the serum levels have any relationship with what you're expecting the drug to be doing on the surface of a white cell in a in the spleen, etc. Um, we don't know if the if immunologic levels in the serum are the same as biologic levels. There's so many ways in which we have gone beyond the simplicity of the assumptions that work in old-fashioned phase two trials for old-fashioned problems like dosing antibiotics. Uh, we're, we're, we're testing 
much more complicated concepts, but we're still using uh, uh, very simplistic designs. I thought I'd let you conclude, and, and I really did want to ask you this genuinely, um, your, your thoughts on this, this last big hurdle, which is from a perspective of a practicing intensivist, I still find the most difficult, which is this increasing translation of knowledge from successful human studies into routine practice. And I know that uh, this is work that, that you're doing, as well as Dr. Pronovost, in terms of that very, after, after people like you and your group have gotten 99% of the way, getting it out into practice still, still isn't happening. The single biggest way in which anyone overcomes any translation barriers in industry is about making everyone feel part of the process. Um, when companies have overhauled building motor cars or building CT scanners, they all speak about everyone feeling like they all have skin in the game. Um, and so uh, one of the key issues is about uh, doing research um, if it's research for, for the clinical, for the bedside, then it has to be research that people at the bedside care about. Um, so, 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 so the first thing is, is about making everyone think that they all share in the process of essentially what is continuous quality improvement. They have to believe that continuous quality improvement is an active, programmatic state of mind and that taking care of a patient as a good clinician, is not a solo exercise, and that you could almost say that being a good being a good clinician is not just really caring about patient one patient at a time, but actually having an eye constantly to thinking about how you'll take care of that same kind of patient in a better way six months from now. And that if, if, if we first of all start thinking that that's always our job, then we start to be more programmatic about embracing change, about always looking forward to doing things in a better way in the future, about being more organized and consistent in how we care. And I, I, I still think that the best way to bring new evidence to the bedside is when you first of all at least organize the way you 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 bring the current evidence to the bedside. If you're programmatic and systematic in how you do things on a, day, on a daily basis, then it's easier when some new evidence comes out to simply make some change in the subroutine. Um, it, 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 it's, it's not to get rid of the art of medicine, but it's to make some commitment to understanding that the process has to be an engineered process. Um, I don't think we're either artists or scientists at the bedside. In many ways, we're engineers that, that, that we have to be consistent and reliable. Dr. Angus, I'm very grateful for your time. We've been speaking today with Dr. Derek Angus, who is currently the chairman of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He is this year's recipient of the American College of Critical Care Medicine's Distinguished Investigator Award, and you'll be able to hear him speak at the upcoming Critical Care Congress, which will be January 31st to February 4th, uh, 2009, in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks again very much, Dr. Angus. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. This concludes our podcast for Friday, January 9th, 2009. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care professionals, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. 
Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society's annual Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year, drawing more than 5,000 professionals from around the world. Throughout this five-day event, more than 300 educational sessions, workshops, keynote addresses, panel discussions, symposiums, and more will be offered on broad and specialized topics in critical care. The high-level programming of Congress speaks to all members of the critical care team, exploring the issues and clinical topics that affect most of their daily environment. Mark your calendar for SCCM's 38th Critical Care Congress to be held January 31st to February 4th, 2009 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. Visit www.sccm.org for further information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.